Hey, Kita, it's Angie. Um, I'm at work, and I just wanted to tell you that one of the jurors was here, and he just came up to me and asked how you were doing and, you know, proclaimed your innocence from the beginning, and he gave me a big hug, and he goes, can you please give her that for me? And it was just so sweet, so I had to call you and tell you. He said, I believed in her the whole time, and it was, just, it was really nice. I'll tell you more when I see you, but I thought you would want to hear that. All right, love you. Bye. Welcome back to Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, the podcast where you'll hear the truth about the litigation process and its impact on the lives of physicians through the voices of physicians, attorneys, and psychologists with firsthand experience. And today we are talking with two defense attorneys about trial and settlement. We've got a lot of ground to cover on preparing for trial, what to expect during the trial, how jury selection works, and how settlement offers are considered. We'll also talk about how you can put your best foot forward during the whole endeavor. And we'll start off, as I love to do, by hearing one physician's story of a case that went to trial and then use that as a springboard for some of our discussions. But to get back to that voicemail that you just heard at the beginning, that was from a nurse I work with, whom I consider a colleague and a friend, and I have to say, getting that message about a juror from my trial who came to the ED with kind words and a hug for me really put a smile on my face for obvious reasons. But it also validates how effective I was at trial in communicating to and connecting with the jury through my testimony and my behavior in court. I have actually had two other jurors come to the emergency department asking for me by name to be their physician, and I am flattered by that. But I have also heard that from other physicians who performed well at trial. Jurors have joined their practices or sought them out to tell them how highly they thought of them after the fact. The essence of testifying well at trial is this. You want the jury to understand your side of the events and come away wishing you could be their doctor. Physicians who can connect with the jury on a human level, who can educate them about the medicine and decision-making involved, and who can consistently stay calm and professional no matter what that plaintiff attorney throws at them, well, that physician has done everything they can do to help earn a defense verdict. Now, as we'll talk about, nothing is ever certain, but at least you'll know you did your part. Is it strategy? Well, yeah, but what it really is, is just letting the jury see you for the good and caring human being and physician you are. You just need to learn to let that part shine in the midst of a terribly stressful situation, and you absolutely can learn to do that by being prepared, understanding and practicing your role, and managing your stress as best you can, as we've talked about in other podcasts. Now, I'm not saying that any of this is easy. And as happy as I am to have shared that voicemail with you, I want to share with you another old saved audio diary of mine from the middle of my second trial. You've heard some of these clips in previous podcasts, and I should say now that if you haven't listened to the previous podcasts, they are best digested in order, so go back and start at the introduction. 
But if anything, this clip gives you the understanding that this is stressful even for the very prepared. But it also doesn't have to keep you from performing well. And that this will all eventually pass. I am fine now. But back then, some days I wasn't. This clip was after listening to the plaintiff testify on her own behalf, which was particularly difficult. The afternoon was basically the plaintiff talking about all the ways that I had ruined her life and the various ways that she had entrusted me and I had willfully and negligently cast aside all of her concerns and it just, you know, it's hard to listen to several hours of that. And I knew that was coming. I've heard it before. Um, and opening, you know, closing statements, sorry, will be far worse. Opening statements were bad. Like I've learned to prepare myself for these things, but somehow, um, even knowing it going in, I gotta say, (laughs) it's really rough. (laughs) Um, so, um, so here I am. I got to go in now. It's just it's going to be another day of the same. And I know, I know that. I know that. Um, but I keep telling myself, <laughs> um, I'm going to call out Liz Crow here. I keep telling myself what I heard her say in a great talk of hers that my current survival rate for the worst day of my life is 100%. So I'm just going to go in and do it again. I'm just going to go do it again. Any physician who has been through a trial with high stakes and serious damages probably knows that feeling. And so, again, before we plunge into the nitty-gritty of trial and preparation for trial, let me reiterate the importance of seeking out others who have been through this process, of getting books and resources, and talking to the people who care about you about what you need to get through this together. Oh, as an aside, in case you're wondering who Liz Crow is, she is a pediatric critical care social worker, well-being educator, and researcher. And if you ever have the opportunity to hear her speak, I would highly recommend it. You can find out more about her at about.me forward slash Liz Crow. That's L-I-Z-C-R-O-W-E. I remember working in a clinical shift and the chief of the ER at the time came to me to tell me that there was a, a constable of the court there to serve me paperwork for a lawsuit. This is Dr. R. He is the current director of the department that he's talking about in that clip. And he's one of those physicians who has been through trial and is sharing his story in an effort to help other physicians going forward. So I was served these papers during a, during a clinical shift, which was very stressful. And I didn't really know how to react or what to do because you know, in residency training, I had not been prepared for that um, and didn't know what to expect. So if you haven't listened to the second podcast in this series, make sure you do so that you will be prepared, unlike Dr. R and myself when I was first named. You know, within the next several days, the case was reviewed. I was sent details of the case. I vaguely, you know, I, I recalled the case because it had made an impression upon me at the time, obviously. I didn't recall all the details, so I had a chance to look at the chart. And within the next several weeks, it was time to start 
getting a lawyer and figuring out what next steps were. And I, being very naive to this sort of matter, again, had no experience and a lot of angst and, and concern about what the next steps were. Dr. R described many of the emotions that you've heard from physicians in previous podcasts. And now he's going to walk us through his case. It was during a time when our hospital had just started up an emergency medicine residency program. It was during maybe the second year of that program's existence. And, you know, the ER itself, uh, where I was working, you know, is a very you know, busy ED and now with a, an academic slant, if you will. A lot of us, I think, it's fair to say we're getting used to working with residents because we hadn't done so during the previous years of our employment at this particular hospital. So, you know, that that's a kind of a skill in and of itself and a, and a comfort level that you have to reach. And, and this particular resident I was working with had a reputation as not being particularly strong. And nonetheless, I, I was aware of that. And it was a busy day in the emergency department. And I was rushing along seeing patients by myself and seeing some patients with the resident. And um, he presented a patient to me that, you know, the chief complaint was essentially epigastric abdominal pain. We put the orders in and I, I scribbled a quick note and, you know, managed to go see the patient a little bit later and uh, did a, a brief exam that matched his description and I was okay with the treatment plan moving forward. And then, then things got lost a little bit and the ER was very busy and a few hours went by and eventually the CAT scan result was returned and, and showed a concern for acute sigmoid diverticulitis. So the patient comes in with epigastric abdominal pain, upper abdominal tenderness, and the CT now shows sigmoid diverticulitis. Not exactly what Dr. R was expecting, but... At the time, you know, the patient's labs had come back and he had a little bit of a white count elevation, which also fit. The location of the patient's tender abdomen and the upper abdomen didn't really fit, but I thought it was reasonable to assume that perhaps some of the pain was referred and all the rest of the pieces fit together and we decided to treat him for his diverticulitis and, and did so according to what would be considered the standard of care. And then uh, around the time when he was getting ready to leave, I went to re-examine him. He was still uncomfortable and, and something in the back of my head said, you know, this guy, he's a little bit heavy, he's got hypertension, he smokes. I'm just going to get an EKG. Just, I mean, the upper abdomen tenderness on exam doesn't fit with an acute coronary syndrome, but you know, I'm just going to do it because I'm, I'm kind of a thorough guy. So I did that and the EKG wasn't normal. Um, it wasn't significantly different from the one he'd had just a couple of days prior when he was also in the emergency department for abdominal pain and was discharged that time too, but it wasn't normal. And something in the back of my head said, pay attention to that. Um, but in, in the rush, in the busy day, I decided not to do that. I let him go home. Four days later, I got a call from one of my colleagues saying, hey, remember that guy? Which is, in emergency medicine, a phrase we live in fear of. And he proceeded to tell me that the, the patient had arrived back at the ER in cardiac arrest and that he had uh, pronounced him dead. And so, you know, one of the difficult things for me in this case was knowing that I hadn't listened to my little inside voice, thinking that maybe I could have done a better job, even though the story didn't fit and the exam didn't fit. Maybe I could have gone one step further. And I had some guilt about that. And that guilt stayed with me. The other hard part about the case for me was that I knew that the patient's wife uh, worked at the hospital. I, I knew her. She was a, a registration clerk at the hospital. I'd interacted with her times in the past just as a, as a colleague. And um, I, I knew that she was probably blaming me and hurting and so forth. 
So I remember sending her a note saying how sorry I was for her loss, and uh, I believe I sent her flowers as well because, again, she was kind of a, a work colleague. So um, I didn't see her at work after that. She left the workplace, I think, due to the emotional stress of the situation. And then a few years went by without any mention of the case until he was served with papers at work. The case moved forward through all the steps we've talked about in previous podcasts. You know, over the next several years, the case developed. I went through all the different stages, original statements and a deposition and all the usual interrogatories and other portions of the data collection that the legal side does. And, and I wasn't prepared for that either. I had one of the best lawyers in the state with an excellent track record, but I think he's so experienced that he maybe didn't realize how little I knew. And so gave me a lot of information to work with, but, but perhaps not all the information, just assuming that I might know from prior experience or, or work colleagues what to expect, and I, and I really didn't. So that was uncomfortable to go through. Another point I'd like to re-emphasize here is that good and experienced doctors get sued. Department heads, seasoned physicians, you're role models. And they undergo the same stress. Dr. R, in his role at the hospital, was unfortunately aware of some of the scrutiny of his case and was disturbed by his feelings of guilt that he might have been able to do more. Because of my status in the hospital and my tenure there, um, I had been elected to be part of the claims committee and the board of directors of the self-insurance program that existed at the hospital. So my malpractice coverage was through the hospital. So I was privy as part of that committee to review all the cases that came through the hospital. And of course, I would be recused from any discussion around my case, which, you know, for me was also very stressful. I would have to get up in front of my colleagues and leave the room while they discuss my case and then go back into the room and pretend like it wasn't a big deal and just keep on talking about other cases that existed at the same time. So that was difficult uh, from an ego standpoint. As we've talked about in previous podcasts, the shame of judgment by our colleagues is a common driver of litigation stress for many, even though the grand majority of all physicians will be sued at some point in their careers, and no physician is immune to bad outcomes or even errors. And this would be a good time to talk about the complexity of the decisions involved in whether to take a case to trial or not. The first point that I'd like to make is that a case rarely goes to trial if it's obvious the physician made a serious error or their care did not meet minimum standards of competence. In other words, if you make a serious mistake, your insurer is going to try very hard to settle that case out of court rather than risk a large jury verdict in the millions of dollars. So by and large, cases that go to trial are defensible. The care may not have been perfect, but if it can be at least argued that the legal definition of standard of care was met, and we talked about what that was in the last podcast, then at least some consideration will be made about moving forwards towards trial instead of trying to settle out of court. Of course, with everything else in this arena, there are no absolutes. Settlement before trial isn't always possible. It takes two to tango. And if a plaintiff's attorney is very confident that a jury will award a very large verdict in a case, they may not agree to a pretrial settlement. We'll get back to this in a minute, but what were the thoughts in Dr. R's case? Because the generally held belief was that the standard of care was met in the case, the hospital and the hospital's attorney, which was also my attorney because it's a joint defense mechanism of 
um, malpractice representation because it's a self-insurance company, it was decided that it, the case was defensible and that we would take it to court uh, because there was a, a rather large demand uh, levied by the plaintiff's side that was not something that the hospital wanted to settle. But even that decision was, was difficult and awkward for me because there was some debate amongst hospital leadership about whether the case was or was not defensible, even up until the very end. And I felt very strongly that despite some of my inner guilt and, and thoughts that perhaps I could have done a better job, I, I also believed that I had upheld the standard of care in, in the legal sense of, of that and wanted to defend the case and was motivated to defend the case because I, I didn't want that on my record. I didn't want that on future job applications. I didn't want that reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So I was determined to fight it, but even up until the very end, uh, there was some debate amongst my colleagues and hospital administration and other senior leadership about whether or not we should take the case to trial. So let's take a break here to talk about some of the many, many factors that go into this decision, starting with the physician themselves. Dr. R strongly wanted to go to trial, but other physicians may not feel this way, whether or not they feel that their care met the standard. Some physicians do not feel as strongly about being reported to the data bank or having to report settlements when applying for privileges because so many of their colleagues have had to do the same thing. Some physicians do not want to take the time from work or have to deal with the stress and time involved in preparing for trial. And even though the final decision about going to trial may not rest in the physician's hands, and we're going to talk more about that in a bit, Usually, the will of the physician does come into the insurer's decision-making at least a little bit because a motivated physician defendant is a better physician defendant. I wanted to win this case. I was pissed when there were rumors that the case might not go to trial. I wanted to win. So I was very motivated, and I've, I've talked with many others who've gone through trials over the years who weren't as motivated and, and really had an enormous amount of apprehension and um, nervousness about it. And I had apprehension too, of course. I, mean, I had a pit in my stomach the whole time, but but I wanted to win. And I've had I've talked to others who weren't quite as motivated to win and, and just were, were so upset about the whole thing and, and so nervous. And some of these people lost their cases, you know. And there's one particular case that I know of recently where on day one of the trial, within an hour of the case opening, admitted that standard of care had not been met and the whole case was settled because like, you know, done, <laughs> walk out of the courtroom, it's over. And this was a winnable case, you know? So I was eager and motivated and competitive and I wanted to win the case. Now we're going to be talking about consent to settle agreements in a little bit, but in many cases, depending on the insurance policy, the decision about going to trial or not is not the decision of the physician, as was the case for Dr. R. For him, it was the insurer who would decide. And for the insurance company, let's be real. As much as they hope to support their physicians as people, this decision has to be a business decision. And the physician preference and their willingness to put in the preparation required is one factor. But other very important considerations for them are things like, how much will it cost the company to go to trial? And how does that compare to the cost of any offered settlements? Going to trial is expensive, and I'm not even talking about whether the defense loses and has to pay out damages. A high-stakes trial is expensive. It involves 
multiple expert witnesses, and we've talked about how much they charge, especially for testifying at trial. And it's not just medical experts either. For instance, if there are economic damages, there will be experts to pay who can speak to those economic calculations. And the attorneys are also billing the insurer for their time. And the amount of preparation involved in going to trial is monumental. The calculated costs for the insurer may wind up being tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the anticipated length of the trial and the number of experts involved. If a case might be settled for a much smaller amount of money, well, that's something to consider. The cost of trial notwithstanding, the next question for the attorney and insurer to deliberate is, knowing that trial is always a gamble, how confident do they feel that if they go to trial, they will win? And if they lose, what is the possibility that they will lose big? Verdicts in the tens of millions of dollars are a very, very big deal. Are you in a state where the climate is such that those verdicts are allowed or even common? Is this case one where the jury will be very sympathetic to the plaintiff? Is this doctor one who will be good on the stand? Will the jury like them? Is the case strong? Will the medical facts be easily understood by the jury? Are the medical experts strong? Will they perform well on the stand? Who is the judge going to be? What is their track record like? Who is the plaintiff's attorney? What is their track record like? You can see there are so many things that come into their decision. But unlike for the physician, the decision is not personal. But thinking about this decision in a more practical way can be protective. As directors of the department, we basically say it is just business. We have to make the right decision. No question about it. There are going to be suits in this group. And there are going to be mistakes in this group. There's, there's no question that mistakes will be made. And that's why we have insurance. This is Dr. Rick Bucata a longtime emergency physician and a renowned educator who, among his many, 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 many roles, is the co-host of the Risk Management Monthly podcast, along with Dr. Greg Henry, whom you heard in the previous podcast. Physician groups are often also named in addition to the defendant or the hospital, and so it's not unusual for directors to be discussing these decisions. He told me the story of one suit in his group that was entirely defensible, but an agreement was made to settle regardless. It was a shame, but I don't think that we could have changed the outcome. It was a young woman, college student, who came home over the Christmas holidays and uh, went to the local emergency department at the uh, big tertiary care hospital and was diagnosed with the flu. And the next day she came to our hospital. She wasn't feeling any better and she had fever, myalgia, that kind of thing. And she started developing petechiae right in the emergency department and she she ultimately died and so the question was when were the petechiae recognized and what did you do about it the physician involved felt very strongly that he had done everything appropriate for this patient and that her fate was sealed before she even walked in the door this fellow had a lot of confidence and truly he was the best doctor in the group in terms of his ability to see patients efficiently, make the correct diagnoses, those kinds of things. And he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it could have been anybody in there, but the grace of God could have been myself or one of my colleagues. And although the physician's care was excellent, 
When the insurer and the physician group thought about the optics of the case and how a jury would likely react, they thought it was too risky to bring to court. The death of a young woman is a tragedy, and they worried that a jury would not understand how deadly meningococcemia is and how, without the petechiae as a clue, during flu season, no physician would likely have started antibiotics as soon as she came in the door instead of as soon as the petechiae began. And even then, she would likely not have survived. The case got settled, and the issue was, well, did you start the antibiotics immediately or did it take you an hour? And the theoretical answer was, well, if you started immediately, maybe she would have had a chance for survival. But the outcome was bad, and there was the necessity to pay some money. So this is a good example of a case where standard of care was met or exceeded, but because of the other variables in the case and the risk of a large loss in court, a smaller settlement seemed like a good idea once it was offered. And that may not sit well with you, but it's very important that you understand how these decisions are made and that a settlement does not automatically indicate any wrongdoing on the part of the physician. But it sure feels like blame when you're reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. It's just such an adversarial process that we, we feel for our brothers and sisters who are going through this. It's easy for us to be Monday morning quarterbacks and say that's just business and um, be more dispassionate when we see somebody else going through it because it's just business. But the fact of the matter is, is that the litigation system is so aggressive in this country that they have to make you look like an uncaring jerk in the process of winning the money. And the lawyer really, personally, he's not against you. It's just business. He'll take you to lunch after the trial's over. He might ask you to be an expert in this next case because you handled yourself well during the uh, process. Yeah, no thanks. Now, let's make another thing clear. Insurance companies really don't want to settle every little thing because then they're seen as an easy mark for any case an attorney wants to file. They can't be seen as pushovers. There's a, a don't feed the bears phenomenon that if an insurance company gets the reputation of, oh, you know what, they'll, they'll sell it for nuisance value for any malpractice claim. What are all the malpractice plaintiffs attorneys going to do? They're going to file nuisance claims and say, OK, settle with me. That's Dr. William Sullivan, MDJD, who's both a practicing attorney and a physician. He's also the senior editor of EP Monthly, a well-known emergency medicine publication. The uh, insurer in Illinois, ISME, actually has a, a reputation of they're going to take every case to trial. And so it tends to weed out a lot of cases which may have uh, marginal uh, liability or they're not really uh, worth very much. It, it weeds those out in the beginning because plaintiff's attorneys know they're going to go to trial with this. I'm going to end up spending you know, $7,500, $100,000 to bring this to trial. And I've got a one in seven chance of winning. Don't forget that whatever calculation of risk and dollars your side is making, the plaintiff's attorney is doing their own calculations. And both sides are posturing as though they're completely ready to take this case all the way, even if they don't really want to. It's like a giant legal game of chicken. It is kind of bad. <laughs> so there's statistics that are involved. So if a case goes to trial, depending on the venue, 
and some uh, venues are more plaintiff friendly than others. But depending on the venue, on average, about one in seven cases is actually decided in favor of the plaintiff. That means the physician wins six out of seven cases. Okay, that's good news and bears repeating. The physician wins six out of seven times. So a plaintiff has a large incentive to say, I'm going to settle for a certain amount of money for sure versus roll the dice and have the dice stacked against me if I go to trial. So the plaintiff, when you talk about a game of chicken, it kind of is with the plaintiff because the plaintiff already knows that the odds are stacked against him or her. So for the plaintiff's attorney, usually a settlement in hand is worth two in the bush. If the settlement is large enough and if they're not convinced that they've got a slam dunk case where a jury will award their side a huge sum of money. But a settlement offer has to be a reasonable one, otherwise the defense insurance company won't consider it. But where do those numbers actually come from? One of the ways that they can make up a settlement demand, I mean, they don't just pick numbers out of thin air, most of the time anyway, they go to jury verdict reporters. And so you can subscribe to services online and they'll say, okay, for a case in a a missed MI in a 35-year-old, what's the average jury verdict? And then they'll use that as a basis to say, okay, here's what I'm going to offer in settlement. If we go to trial, the jury verdicts report an average of about $5 million um, verdict in trial. We will settle the case for $3 million. And so they may go about it like that, trying to negotiate it. Um, and a lot of other things play into it. I mean, if someone's um, disabled, if they got a permanent disability from whatever the alleged malpractice was, the settlement value goes up because they're going to have to Um, provide lifelong care for that person. And you get people that have to testify about how long the person's going to live for and what are the um, estimated expenses over that person's lifetime. But wait, there's more. Pain and suffering is another big deal. Some states allow it. Some states have caps on it. Some states don't allow it at all. So whether or not the settlement demand goes up kind of depends upon whether there's any pain and suffering and what the different states allow. So now you're getting the idea. The decision to make or accept a settlement offer or take a case to trial is a complex calculus that includes a million things other than the medicine involved, including what state or even what city or county you're in. Louisiana, where I practice, actually has a cap on medical malpractice, what they call general damages, pain and suffering. And so it probably makes it a little easier to try the case because you don't have the risk of astronomical runaway verdicts. Allow me to introduce now our second legal expert of the day, attorney Douglas Williams, JD. I'm a partner in the firm of Brazil, Saxe and Wilson in Baton Rouge. I have been practicing for almost 37 years, and I have been doing medical malpractice defense for 27, 28 years. He agreed that location or venue is a very important consideration when thinking about settlement options. I will tell you as a general rule, the venue of the case can affect the settlement value, the venue being what court is it filed in. I practice here in Louisiana, and I literally can tell you that you take the same case and you file it where my office is located, it has one value. You file it in another parish that might be 10 or 15 miles away, and it has a different value because you've got a different jury base, you've got a different set of judges. So this is yet another reason why you want an experienced attorney on your side who knows these things and can help you and the insurer weigh your options. 
Okay, so we're talking about all of these factors that affect settlement offers and whether they're accepted, but let's get back for a second to what the defendant physician wants. Now, of course, what they really want, more than anything usually, is to just be dropped and left in peace. And sometimes that does actually happen, especially if there are numerous defendants and you are more of a bit player, and if you performed well at your deposition. No guarantees of that, but it could happen. The plaintiff's attorney often names as many defendants as possible in the beginning, especially if they have different insurers, which means more potential pockets to pull money from. If each of them can get settled out separately, more is the better from their perspective. But once the case is at trial, there is also an advantage to the plaintiff to having fewer defendants, because it's easier for a jury to comprehend and assign blame. So... This situation can get ugly at times. Remember what Dr. Brenner said about Game of Thrones in the second podcast? Well, unfortunately, sometimes it's true. One physician I know was in a lawsuit with co-defendants, and one of them got dropped from the case in the morning, and by the afternoon, he was called by the plaintiff's attorney as a witness, testifying against the remaining physician. When I say ugly, I mean ugly. But pointing fingers generally looks bad for everyone concerned. I asked Counselor Williams to talk a little bit about how cases with multiple co-defendants work sometimes. I tell my doctors all the time that you defend yourself by presenting what you did, what your field of practice is, what it is you're responsible for, for that patient. In other words, an ER doctor's responsibility is different from the hospitalist, is different from the surgeon who comes in on consultation. And so while you hope you can all stay in your own lane, so to speak, and fend your own actions, I will tell you, unfortunately, every once in a while, you have a case that becomes a circular firing squad. And those are usually not the ones you take to trial. One more factor that goes into the calculations of whether we push ahead for trial or fight for a settlement. Which brings me back to what kind of control the doctor has over this. As I said before, it depends on your insurance policy and whether that policy includes a requirement for your consent. And maybe you don't want the right to dictate that decision as much as you think you do. Most professional liability insurers offer for an additional premium what they call a consent to settle clause and you have the right to say yes or no to settlement and most physicians i know get consent to settle clauses in their insurance i happen to represent a large system that is self-insured so there are not quote unquote consent to settle clauses but the system will never settle a case without the doctor buying in so in, in that case it's not a problem So as I have said before, if you do not know what is in your malpractice insurance policy, get a copy, read it, and understand it. In large self-insured hospital systems, physicians will have shared defenses with any other co-defendants, which has some advantages and some drawbacks. And they usually do not have control over settling their own cases. Hopefully your system does take the physician's will into account as Counselor Williams suggested, but they usually don't need your permission to settle. 
The same is true with other private insurers unless you have a consent to settle agreement. So in policies that have them, a consent to settle agreement gives the physician the right to refuse a settlement offer and force a case to proceed to trial. But it often includes something called a hammer clause. It depends on what's in the insurance policy that you have. So some of them will have a consent to settle clause, which means that in order for them to settle a case, you need to approve it. And that's kind of empowering for the physician because you can kind of say, if they have a weak case, I'm not going to sell this for some nuisance value. I don't want my name going on to the National Practitioner Data Bank. The flip side is, is that in a consent to settle clause, most of the time they have something called a hammer clause. And what that means is that if you decide that you're not going to settle the case when the insurance company wants to settle the case, you're liable for any excess judgment. Okay, now that's important to know. If the insurance company says, we want to settle this for $50,000, you say, no, I want to take it to trial. They'll still defend the case all the way through trial, but if there's a $500,000 verdict, or a $30 million verdict. They're only going to pay for the $50,000 that they would have settled. You're going to have to come up with the other $450,000. Or $29,950,000. So you can say, I decline to settle the case, but then if the hammer clause takes effect, you get hammered in the end of the case if there's a verdict against you. So how much is having that degree of control worth to you? To me, not enough. In my trial, there was the chance of a multi-million dollar verdict against me, and I was given the opportunity to sign away my consent to settle, to let the insurance company decide whether to take a settlement before trial or to take this case all the way. And they elected to go to trial. But I had given them the right to drive the bus, and in so doing, protected myself from the fear of the possibility of my assets being at risk. Exactly. It protects you. So if you sign a, an agreement that says, I, I want to settle this case, you're going to get reported to the data bank. I mean, that's, that's a given. It's a mandatory. Yes, if the case is settled and there is a payment, you will be reported to the data bank. On the flip side, it protects you from any judgment in excess of the limits. But the insurance company may say, you know what, we're not settling this case, or we think the case has merit, or the defense has merit, and we've taken it through our uh, our board and presented it, and we've decided that we're in a uh, defense posture. So we're going to defend the case as opposed to a settlement posture. And they may say, you know what, we appreciate that you're, you wish to settle the case, we're gonna go forward with the defense. But then if for some reason there's a judgment and it's in excess of the policy limits, then it ends up, most of the time, the insurance company will end up being on the hook for the excess and not the position. Which we can all agree would be preferable. This is a good time to talk about the fear of losing at trial and having a very large judgment against you. This is what we're all afraid of. And juries, as we'll talk about momentarily, are unpredictable. If you're trying a lot of cases, the unfortunate fact is you're going to win some you didn't think you would, and you're going to lose some that you didn't think you would. It is sometimes very difficult to fully understand what's going to influence a juror and his or her perspective, because no lawyer who's honest with himself or herself knows they're going to win a case because you just don't know what a jury's going to do. 
I want to reiterate here that it is very, very rare for a physician's personal assets to actually be at risk, but the threat of it does come up as you heard with Dr. V's story in episode three. So you want to be as prepared as you can to protect yourself. There are financial advisors and attorneys who specialize in asset protection, and that might be worth investigating. If you are able to sign an agreement as I did, that can be protective and give you some peace of mind as it did for me. But something else that you should know that might help allay some of those fears is that often, even if there is a very large verdict against the physician, there is often a post-verdict negotiation that can bring that number down to something more realistic. You can say, I want to fight the case, the insurance company agrees, and then there's a, a $3 million verdict. And you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in debt for $2 million. What happens after that verdict is a lot of times there's backroom negotiating again, and the, the defense attorney and the, and the insurance company will say, listen, we've got plenty of room for appeal. We're going to appeal this. Um, we're going to drag this out. So you can either accept the policy limits um, instead of the $3 million judgment, or we're going to drag this out for another several years and appeal. And then if it gets appealed, you're going to lose everything. And so then the plaintiff attorney has to make another decision. Do I settle for the policy limits, even though I got a $3 million judgment, or do I press forward at my expense and with the risk of them getting the case overturned? If those negotiations don't work out, there is the possibility of appeal if your attorney thinks it's possible to proceed with that. Now, if your head's not spinning too much yet, there's something else you should know about a way that attorneys on both sides sometimes hedge their bets to protect themselves and you. And this is something called a high-low agreement. If you want to protect yourself, there's something else that's called a high-low agreement. And basically what that means is the plaintiff and the defendant kind of agree to set bookends on any jury verdict. So they may say that we've got a $1.5,500,000 high-low agreement. And what that means is that if the jury comes back and they have a $20 million verdict, the insurance company only had to pay out $1.5 million because that's what they agreed to in this high-low agreement. But on the other side, if there's a defense verdict, so if the physician wins, the insurer will still pay the plaintiff $500,000. And if there's a judgment between $500,000 and $1.5 million, then it's whatever it is. You, the uh, insurance company pays that amount. You got that? An agreement like this sets a ceiling on the amount of money your side has to pay out if you lose. The flip side is that even if you win, the plaintiff's attorney gets a check for the agreed-upon amount. But that is not a settlement or a judgment that has to be reported on your record. If there's a uh, jury verdict in favor of the plaintiff, then yes, there's a verdict against you and you're paying out. So then that you'd get a, a judgment against you in the National Practitioner Data Bank. But if there's a defense verdict, even if the insurance company pays money, that ends up being a contractual liability, not a malpractice liability. So you don't get a judgment against you um, in the National Practitioner Data Bank. So this is a long episode. And believe it or not, in this episode, we're just scratching the surface about trial and settlement. But let's recap what we've talked about so far. 
We heard Dr. R's story and how he very much wanted to defend his case at trial, but how that wasn't actually his decision to make. We talked about some of the many, many factors that go into decisions about offering or accepting settlement and about who actually makes those decisions depending on your policy. We heard about a case of meningococcemia where the physician could not possibly have saved the patient, but due to the optics of the case, it was settled regardless. We discussed the costs associated with taking a case to trial and why insurers and groups have to look at these decisions as business decisions, even though to the physician it often feels personal, especially when they are being reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. And finally, we talked about consent to settle agreements and the hammer clause, and how signing that right away can sometimes be protective. We talked about what might happen in the wake of a large jury verdict against you, and about high-low agreements where parties can hedge their bets. So let's get back to Dr. R. We did take the case to trial, and it went to trial, if I recall, eight years after the actual case. So for all that eight years, you know, many months would go by with no information, and then there'd be a wealth of information. And it was a very slow, stuttering course before we actually got to trial. And once the decision was made to proceed to trial, I certainly met with my attorney on many occasions to prep for that. They had me meet with a person who coaches witnesses to make sure I understood what the best body language and eye contact and posture and things like that would be when I was up on the witness stand. A lot of it is common sense, but some people do find it helpful. When the stakes are high, preparation is key. For the remainder of this episode, we're gonna talk about the road leading up to trial preparation for trial, and what to expect during the trial. Let's just say that there are entire books written about any one of the items that we're going to discuss, so this is really just an overview to give you a sense of what to expect and get you pointed in the right direction. You can get some of those books, read more about any of these items, and your attorney will also be preparing you, just like Dr. R's attorney prepared him. There's often lots of time to prepare. You heard Dr. R mention the years it took for his case to go to trial. My first trial was over four years from the filing of the suit, and the second trial was another seven years after the appeal was filed. So one thing you can expect leading up to trial is a lot of waiting. The months leading up to a trial, realistically, you're several years into the lawsuit. So by then you've already done your depositions. And after you do the depositions, there's just a lot of waiting behind the scenes. The the attorneys may be trying to settle the case or trying to get you out of the case. But once in a while, you may hear it from the attorney and he just says, hey, you know, we're still set for trial on this date and this time. But you tend not to hear a lot until trial date's set and things are ramping up because you're going to fight this. Certainly, things move faster in some states than others. Interestingly, in my state, there is interest added on to any judgments at a rate of 1% per month from the time of the alleged injury. And 1% per month sure can be a lot of money in a multi-million dollar judgment after over a decade. Maybe that's one reason it takes so long. Now, as he alluded to, trial dates are set well in advance, 
and in general, defendants are expected to be in court for those dates, so plan accordingly. However, yet another very frustrating thing about this is that those dates can change, and whatever well-laid plans you have made for time off or coverage are blown to smithereens and you have to start from scratch, sometimes multiple times. And in the many intervening years since you were the plaintiff's physician, you may have moved, so there could be lots of logistics involved in planning to be at trial. And to have those dates changed without regard to how hard it is on you, well, it will likely add to your general sense of frustration and lack of control. So let's get back to you and your attorney preparing to do battle at trial. Your attorney may try to get you out by filing motions to dismiss, and most of the time that doesn't work. If you've gotten this far in litigation already, you're probably not going to get out of the trial. So one of the big things is getting prepared to testify. And sometimes with depositions, an attorney will say, oh, you know, meet me in my office an hour before. You shouldn't do that with a deposition, but you should definitely not do it with a trial. You need to spend days or weeks preparing for your trial testimony. Like many other aspects of litigation, there's both practical and psychological preparation involved. Part of my preparation is quite frankly, hand-holding. Getting them ready psychologically to go in and defend themselves because these sort of things are a very personal assault on the physicians. It challenges their integrity. It challenges their professional competence. And for obvious reasons, that can be very unsettling to the physicians. So, many of the lessons learned in previous podcasts apply here. Managing your stress is a huge part of being a better witness. But let's get back to the practical. Two major points. Point number one. Know that chart inside and out. Take the time to read it and read it in detail, not to just skim over it as we frequently do in busy times because the details are what ultimately usually make a difference in these cases. The biggest thing is just memorizing the chart. I mean, you have to know the chart inside and out. Every little detail, anything that supports whatever theme that you're trying to convey or whatever point you're trying to make, it's very powerful to be sitting there and say, uh, no, counsel, you need to look on page four of the chart down at the bottom. It says this. I mean, that's very powerful to the jury to say, this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, so one is absolutely memorizing the chart and you have to memorize your deposition too. That's major point number two. Come as close to memorizing your deposition testimony as you can. When you testify at trial, they're going to have a copy of your deposition. If you stray at all from what you said in the deposition, they're going to use it to make you look bad. They call it impeachment in law, but they're going to say, well, you said this in your deposition and now you're saying this at trial. Which one's the jury supposed to believe? Were you lying then or were you lying now? So you really need to memorize your deposition, have that down cold. So even though we went over it at great length in episode six, I would be remiss if at this point I did not mention the importance of preparing for your deposition. We could talk for hours about all the things that happen during trial too and all the little tricks that they use. But another important point with that is it's so important to be prepared properly for your deposition because if you say the wrong things during your deposition, it'll definitely be used against you at trial. And there's not really a way to weasel out of it. Once you set it as a sworn testimony in your deposition, you're going to have a lot of difficulty saying, well, that wasn't what I meant when you get to trial. 
which is exactly the position Dr. R found himself in. I'd been told that my deposition was important, but I didn't realize how important my deposition was in the sense that the plaintiff's attorney went through my deposition paragraph by paragraph, and I was forced to read parts of it aloud to the jury. And of course, the plaintiff's counsel was very deliberate in which pieces he chose to read aloud. But in my particular case, there were a couple of contradictions in my deposition testimony. And of course, the plaintiff's attorney focused on that to make it look like I was wishy-washy or didn't know what I was doing or lacked confidence. And my lawyer hadn't really pointed out to me how important that deposition was going to be. And that was disconcerting to me. It just made me feel very unsettled up in the witness stand, which of course was the plaintiff's attorney's goal. Yes, that is their goal. The plaintiff's attorney's goal is to make you look bad on the stand in whatever way they can. They are trained to look for your weaknesses and capitalize on them. Are you nervous? They'll try to trip you up. Are you confident? They'll try to make you look arrogant or uncaring. Are you saying something different than you said at deposition? Well, they'll certainly capitalize on that. But anticipating these moves is the answer. Practicing with your attorney or a consultant is the antidote. Remember that this is a game of strategy and optics. And speaking of optics, let's talk a little more about them. You know, dressing the part, playing the game, not doing anything to make yourself stand out as arrogant or affluent or egotistical, any of those things, because you want to come across to the jury as a, a kind, compassionate, knowledgeable, humble, but confident position. And that's really at all times during the trial, because the jury will be watching you all the time. So just down to earth, you know, average clothes, uh, keep your phone. I mean, if you're allowed to bring your phone in, you keep it off because you don't want to look like you're uh, disinterested in the trial. Don't make faces like sometimes you'll, especially when the opposing expert is on the stand, they're going to say horrible things about you. And if you make faces or you shake your head, all it does is it makes you look bad. You sit there, they used to say poker face. My attorney called it looking politely interested. You don't smile, you don't nod. I mean, there was a couple times where I would shake my head. Did I mention before that Dr. Sullivan has also been a defendant in addition to being a defense attorney? But for the most part, you sit there with a poker face. In fact, one of the times where I, I shook my head and my attorney was sitting next to me and I had my pad out and he wrote on my pad, stop. So uh, you just need to sit there and take it. And then you need to rehabilitate yourself in their eyes when you get up on the stand. Counselor Williams had similar sentiments. Understand that you are in a place that requires a certain level of decorum and maintain that. But once the trial gets started, I want you at the table next to me and I want you listening to the witness more than anything else. We can talk on breaks, we can talk at different times, but I want you listening to the witnesses. Take notes because there are so many details that come out during trial and quite frankly, little statement that sometimes you just feel I need to hit and explain it. I don't want that nagging in the back of the jury's head. So I'm I'm taking notes. I want the doctor to take notes and we will compare notes. We talk about, all right, what do we need just to neutralize this point and move on to our presentation of our case. As a general rule, the plaintiff puts on their case first and the defense goes after the plaintiff rests. 
It's common for the plaintiffs to call the physician in their case to really set up the testimony of their experts. They aren't necessarily interested in having evidence of the entire case brought out during the doctor's testimony, but they are certainly interested in talking about those aspects and those facts that their expert will seize on later in their presentation of their case to explain why they think that there was a breach of the standard of care. The plaintiff's attorney may call you as a witness in their portion of the case, and that may not leave you feeling so great. But when your own attorney questions you, either cross-examining you after you testify for the plaintiff, or if they call you separately as part of the defense's case, you will feel much more comfortable and you'll get to tell your story. I always remind them the difference between trial and a deposition is in the deposition, I'm answering questions. In the trial, I'm telling my story. What I want them to do is be prepared at the right moment to tell their story. And I know I am emphasizing this heavily, but how you comport yourself while you tell your story is just as important as the story itself. First, they should always be professional and I guess sometimes you might express it as above the fray. It doesn't mean that the doctors can't be human on the stand. In fact, I think the more human you are, the better received you are. But I've seen doctors get very defensive on the stand. It really does not go over well. Doctors should not be sarcastic. It may feel good to throw a zinger at the plaintiff's lawyer. But that's a personal feeling, and the question is, you've got to be telling your story to that jury. So I tell my doctors, be professional, be as dispassionate as you can be, be as clear as you can be. You have to think about what does an average person, which, you know, an average person in the community, what do they like about physicians? What do they find favorable about physicians? Someone that's caring, someone that knows what they're talking about, um, someone who is humble, concise. So those are all the things that you should try to bring to the witness stand where you just show, you know what, I'm a good doctor. If you are arrogant, if you say, you know, this is, this is what it is, I'm the doctor type of thing, they're gonna dislike you and people are more tend more to um, rule against physicians that they don't like. So you wanna be, friendly, smile, look at the jury when you're, ta- when, when you're testifying, look at them to establish a connection with them. And as opposed to deposition, this is the time to educate them, to speak in plain terms about the medical facts and your decision making. My attorney said they didn't want me to teach when I was up on the stand, but I did it anyway because they said that's the job for the expert. It's like, no, that's my job to show them that I know what I'm talking about. So they actually cut, like once I was done testifying, they actually cut a lot of the experts' testimony short because I already testified about it. And you will not be the only person teaching the jury, of course. The experts will also be educating them and your attorney will be educating them. We try very hard to get the jury to understand not only the facts, but the judgment that has to go into the physician's decision-making process. And to understand that medicine is not an exact science like math. I can take four different patients who appear to have similar issues, but may have some different underlying medical issues, treat them all the same and get four different results. And one of those may not be a good result. By the time you go to trial, your attorney will have a very good understanding of the medicine involved in your case, and they will be continually educating the jury, sometimes from the very beginning, their opening statements. The opening statement 
is an opportunity for you to tell the jury what your case is about, what they're going to hear. It is an opportunity to frame the issues. And I do know some lawyers who don't place a lot of stock in opening statements. I happen to believe they're extremely important. Reality is jurors aren't always going to understand the complexities of medical testimony. They're not always going to be able to keep their attention throughout the entire case. This is true. One of the jurors in my second trial fell asleep at about 10 o'clock every single day. And the opening statement frames the issues and perhaps gets the jury thinking about evidence or testimony they need to be looking for during the course of the case. And I think they are extremely important. It's also an opportunity to reinforce with the jury their obligation to be objective and fair. I always take it as a chance, if I haven't done so during the voir dire process, I take it as an opportunity to remind the jury that the plaintiff will go first. You will hear their best case. They're going to put their best foot forward. And I like to remind them not to make up their mind until they've had the opportunity to hear all the evidence. So he just mentioned the voir dire and a little bit about the order of events, but it would be a good time right now to learn about the basic timeline of the trial. Let's say it's day one. You have practiced and prepared. You know your chart. You know your deposition. You've practiced your testimony. There have been no last-minute settlement agreements on the courthouse steps, which does sometimes happen. You've practiced answering tough questions, and you know how to play your role and let that good and caring doctor shine. So... What can you expect on your first day of trial? Oh, what does it look like? You get there early. I would suggest getting there early. You walk into a courtroom and there may be a bailiff there, um, maybe a couple of attorneys. There's probably the court reporter that's there. You just sit down at the desk, you take a deep breath in and say, this is where I'm going to be sitting for a couple of weeks. First day is usually jury selection. And uh, you sit there for what seems like forever, and all of a sudden you hear a bunch of people talking out in the hallway. The door opens up, and 40 or 50 people pile into the courtroom. And they all just sit there and stare at you. <laughs> and so begins the voir dire. That's V-O-I-R, second word, D-I-R-E. Voir dire is an opportunity for the lawyers to ask questions of the potential jurors. You're trying to learn things about them that hopefully give you some insight as to how they might view your case. You can't ask them things that are fact specific to the case, but you're asking information from their educational background, their work background, perhaps family background. Have they ever had any issues with any of their physicians? Have they ever had bad experiences? Have they had family members? Have they ever filed suit? Have they ever been a defendant in a suit? You just want to go through the process and begin to understand the personalities, the backgrounds of the people who are on the jury. Uh, at the end of the day, life experience drives how jurors see facts and cases. And the more you know about their life experiences, the better opportunity you have to select a jury that you think will be favorable or receptive to the message that you have for the jury. I will tell you, as a general rule, I think most defendants want as highly educated a juror as you can get, uh, and you typically want people who are employed or retired and have been employed. I think that a lot of times, and I'm not trying to be discourteous, but I think a lot of times the plaintiff side is looking for 
people that they think will be more easily influenced by emotion rather than facts. I want people who are going to listen to the facts. Jury selection makes or breaks your case. It's of huge importance. There's a whole industry of jury selection consultants. There are books. There is research and science. And it's because the jury is everything. So each side wants as many jurors that seem like they would be naturally inclined towards their case as possible. The attorneys are trying to size up the jurors to see, you know, is this person going to be a favorable juror or an unfavorable juror? And so they might ask you, you know, do you know the plaintiff or the defendant? Have you ever been treated at the hospital? That's an issue. And if they say yes, well, do you have a good experience or bad experience? If they say you had a good experience, well, great. That's someone the defense, defense wants on the jury and that's someone the plaintiff wants off the jury. Then they may make a motion in the court to say, you know, this person's potentially biased. We want to do a, uh, a challenge for cause. A challenge for cause is how an attorney dismisses a prospective juror for a specific reason, usually due to bias or prejudice. The cause is that this uh, juror has experience with a hospital and uh, they may be biased in favor of the defendant because they had a good experience. And so the judge will rule, you know, do we kick the juror off or do we let the juror on? Each side also gets a certain number of what are called peremptory challenges. This means they can ask for a potential juror to be dismissed for any reason they like. Usually this is limited to a small number under the rules of that jurisdiction. You have what are called peremptory challenges, which is basically you can exclude anybody for any reason as long as it's not based on religion, sex, race, that sort of thing. The strategy is that you want to use challenge for cause when you're able to, so you can save up those peremptory challenges for when your side doesn't really want a particular juror on, but can't make a clear argument to the judge as to why. In general, you can expect the plaintiff side to try to remove anyone from the jury who has worked in healthcare, like nurses or physicians, or who actually understands medicine. And uh, then you just go through every one of the jurors like that until you get all 12 jurors, and then usually have a few alternates um, in case one of the jurors doesn't, uh, doesn't make it or has to withdraw for some reason. The actual number of jurors may sometimes vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but usually it's between 6 and 12, plus some alternates. Once the jury is finally selected, then the judge will address the jury. The jury sits in a jury box, which is usually on one side of the courtroom. And when they are not listening to testimony, they will be kept in a room adjacent to the courtroom. There will be times when the jury is not allowed to hear what is happening in the courtroom, and they will wait in that room at those times. Once the trial officially begins, there are a few formalities. The judge might introduce him or herself, tell the jury a little bit about the case, and give them some instructions. And then the attorneys will give their opening statements. As you heard Counselor Williams say earlier, the opening statement is a chance for each side to start to tell the story of their case and establish their themes. This is not the time for legal arguments, but really just to set the stage. Each side will give an opening statement, and then the plaintiff's attorney will begin to put on their side's case by calling witnesses to be examined. Witnesses are, in general, either fact witnesses or expert witnesses, though it seems sometimes that line gets blurred. Fact witnesses are called to say what happened and to testify as to the events in the case. 
you are really supposed to be there as a fact witness, but again, that line may sometimes get blurred. Fact witnesses are not supposed to offer opinions. Expert witnesses offer opinions and explanations, and we have spent a great deal of time discussing them in previous podcasts. The initial questioning of the witness in this part of the case by the plaintiff's attorney is called the direct examination. Your attorney then has the opportunity to cross-examine the witness. They have questioned their witness. They have brought out the testimony they want to. I get to cross-examine the witness on the case. Most judges will leave you and give you full open cross-examination. Some courts will limit cross-examination to the issues brought out during the direct questioning by plaintiff's counsel, which sometimes means you may have to call that witness in your own case. But 99% of the time, I cross-examine not only on the testimony that they gave to the direct questioning by the plaintiff's lawyers, but to also bring out the facts and the issues that I want them to admit, the things that I want to hear from their witness, whether it's a fact witness or an expert, that will fit into our position in the case. After the cross-examination, the plaintiff's lawyer may again question the witness, and this is called redirect. And this may be followed by recross. This cycle of examining and cross-examining witnesses and receiving exhibits and evidence continues until the plaintiff's evidence is laid out and they have made their case. And at this time, the plaintiff's lawyer will state to the court that the plaintiff rests. And now it's the defense team's turn to put on their case. Once the plaintiff has rested, you then move to the defense side. Not in every case, but in most cases, I will make at least a formal motion to ask for an involuntary dismissal on the proposition that the plaintiff has failed to put on evidence which supports a claim. Uh, Those don't get granted often, but last year I tried a case, for example, where at the end of the plaintiff's case, we moved for a dismissal and the judge dismissed the case. If the case is not dismissed, then I begin to put on my evidence. I really look at it as telling a story. It's not necessarily always a timeline, but I look at really what witness or witnesses do I want to finish with? What is the strongest finish? What gives me an opportunity to then lead into potentially closing arguments? But a lot of times, quite frankly, you're dealing with the schedules of witnesses, the availability of witnesses, and sometimes you take them in all kinds of crazy orders. But I will get to put on my witnesses, and as I did with theirs, they will cross-examine my witnesses. As we've talked about at length, you can expect to be called to testify during the course of these events. You will be sworn in, and all eyes will be on you. It will be your time to tell your story and to perform like you've practiced. Your testimony may actually go on for many hours, even into the next day. But there's one thing you should know if your testimony is to be continued to the following day, and that is that you will still be under oath. And that was the case for Dr. R, though he hadn't known that he would not be allowed to talk to his attorney or really anyone about the events of the day until he went back and finished his testimony and was excused from the witness stand. I didn't understand one of the strategies of the plaintiffs, which is that they wanted me up on the stand so I was called as a witness by the, by the plaintiff, and I was up on the stand all day. And the direct examination by the plaintiff's attorney had not concluded by the end of the day, and the court adjourned for the day. 
And what I didn't understand at that point is that I couldn't talk to anyone. I wanted some sort of feedback from my lawyer and some of the legal team representing me and the hospital's um, you know, malpractice representatives that were sitting in the courtroom. I wanted to know how I'd done because, quite frankly, it felt pretty shaky. Uh, but they couldn't give me feedback because I was still under oath. So after the defense has put on their case and the defense rests, then there will be the closing arguments. Typically, the plaintiff goes first. Now, expect this to be difficult to listen to. It will be strongly worded and make you out to be a true villain. But then your attorney will provide their closing argument. Just as with the presentation of the evidence, in closing argument, the plaintiff goes first, the defense goes second, and the plaintiff gets rebuttal. They get to go last. And so it is important that you, as a defendant, get your message across to that jury in a way that's clear. And I'll tell you, as a practical matter, what I try to do in virtually every closing argument is pose a question to the jury, and it may be rhetorical, but I want them asking themselves, why didn't the plaintiff present this piece of evidence? Or I want them sitting there, I'll oftentimes tell them, the plaintiff is coming back for rebuttal after me. Wait and see if they answer this question for you. And I'll always pose it as a question that it's virtually impossible for the plaintiff to answer. But you accomplish two things. You get the jury to see the gaps in the plaintiff's case. And you also, quite frankly, force the plaintiff's lawyer to perhaps do some things in rebuttal that he or she wasn't planning to and wasn't wanting to address. And now we are truly in the home stretch. After the closing arguments, there is usually a recess, meaning the jury is excused and there's a break in the action. Actually, I should say there are lots of recesses during the case and lunch breaks and sometimes late starts or early finishes as may suit the judge's schedule. I found the whole experience to be unbelievably slow and tedious, especially since you have to sit there all day listening. But Perhaps that's just me as an emergency physician who is used to a much faster daily pace. But during this particular recess, the judge and the attorneys will prepare instructions for the jury. They are not exactly the same in every case, and the language of the instructions will be argued over. Once those instructions are prepared, everyone is called back and the judge gives what's called the charge to the jury. Basically, instructions for what the law is in the case and how they should proceed with their deliberations. In general, the jury determines what the facts are in the case and the judge or the court determines what the law is. And it's important to note that throughout the case, the judge has a lot of control over how the case proceeds and in turn, which side wins. Judges can affect a trial in a lot of different ways. I will tell you this, in some respects, judges reflect society. There are those in society who are conservative. There are those in society who are liberal. There are those in society that sometimes we don't understand quite how they get to the conclusion they get to. So understanding who the judge on a case is and what his or her point of view, predisposition may be, is always important. Judges can affect a case from things as significant as pre-trial rulings, uh, what are called Daubert motions, in other words, perhaps limiting or striking an expert witness entirely. Judges can affect a case with pretrial motions, such as what's called a motion in limine, which again deals with the evidence that is or is not allowed during the trial, and they can affect the testimony by whether or not they grant partial summary judgments, in other words, throwing out part of the case, because personally, I think every defense lawyer wants to streamline the case as much as possible before trial. So 
Those are the kind of things that happen before trial. During trial, it is easy for a court to impact the outcome based on what do they allow witnesses to say? Do, what objections are they sustaining? What objections are they overruling? There are times that literally I know I can take the same witness and put them in Judge A's courtroom and the judge will significantly limit that testimony and I put them in Judge B's courtroom and the Judge B feels like that's something a jury should hear and let the jury sort it out. You heard the story of Dr. M in a previous podcast and how the judge assigned to his trial changed the entire trajectory of his case. And that is actually not that uncommon. The plaintiff and the defense attorneys uh, do their homework on the judges. So they'll know if a judge's rulings tend to be more plaintiff or defense friendly. And sometimes they may try to get a, uh, a different judge. It doesn't always work. But the judge has a lot of ability to affect the outcome of the case because the jury kind of looks at the judge to keep things in control. So if the judge didn't particularly like one of the defense attorneys, in my case, the defense attorney for the hospital, he didn't like. So he would uh, rule against him fairly consistently on pretty much everything he did. And the attorney was getting kind of frustrated. Uh, and eventually the uh, hospital settled out. Like during the trial, the hospital settled out. And I don't know if it was because of that. So back to the timeline of our case. Now the jury has been charged and we wait for the verdict. It is a gruelingly suspenseful time and it can go on for quite a while. And the longer it goes, the more nervous you get. Jury deliberated for four days. So for those four days, you know, I could leave the courtroom, but you can't really be more than 10 or 15 minutes away because the jury might come to a decision at any point and the judge would call them back into the courtroom along with you to render the verdict. And so I couldn't go home or do anything. I just had to kind of sit around. Sometimes I could go out and get a bite to eat and come back. But for the most part, I sat on a cold wooden bench in the hall in the courtroom waiting for something to happen. And so we would get little little tidbits of updates. You know, the, the jury's asked the judge for this or the jury's reviewing that. Um, but we couldn't really interpret how things were going. But it was concerning that it was four days. It clearly wasn't a, you know open and shut case, if you will, for the jury one way or the other. And then something happened that does not often happen. There was a hung jury. There were two amongst nine jurors that felt as though I had not met the standard of care, whereas the other seven did. Because of that, it was considered a hung jury. And what was particularly frustrating for me is that the two people that didn't feel that I'd met the standard of care, one was an HVAC technician who knew a bit about electricity and felt that because of his electrical knowledge, he understood EKGs. It was frustrating for me because I tried to educate you know, the jurors, including this individual, about, about the EKG and, and why I thought the way I did about it. But that clearly didn't resonate with this person. and He thought that the EKG showed something different than what it did. And the second juror simply went along with the HVAC technician the entire time. And yes, in case you're wondering, sometimes attorneys can question juries about their decisions after it's all over. But let's get back to the verdict. You expect to either win or lose, but a hung jury and the mistrial resulting is its own sort of rare torture. If a jury cannot come to a decision, a lot of times a judge will continue to encourage them to go back and talk. Sometimes a judge will give what's called a dynamite instruction, which is almost forcing the jury to go make a decision. But if there reaches a point where it's clear that they are so divided that they can't make a decision, 
then a mistrial will have to be declared. Now, there are other reasons for mistrials, such as misconduct by the jury or one of the witnesses, or if information comes out during the trial that should not have, for example. I had to be very careful in my second trial not to ever mention that there had been a first trial, because that would have been grounds for a mistrial. So it's important that you talk to your attorney about the rules of engagement because you don't want to accidentally stumble into a mistrial and then have to try your case all over again. But here we are with Dr. R and a hung jury, and now he has to do it all over again. So after all those years and all that preparation and all that stress, I was told that we would have to do it all over again. So that, as you might imagine, you know, was, was kind of heartbreaking in many ways and very difficult to deal with. Heartbreaking is exactly the word that I would use to describe how I felt when I learned that my verdict had been overturned in appeal and that I would have to return to trial. But fortunately, Dr. R did not have to wait years for his repeat trial. It was tried again uh, about probably six months later, five or six months later. And of course, when you do something a second time, things go a lot better. In this case, uh, the second time around, it was a few days shorter. The first case lasted a good two, two and a half weeks, but this one was a few days shorter. Uh, we had better experts. My testimony was a lot stronger. And it was just a, it was a kind of an open and shut case at that point. And by the end of that trial, I felt much better. And the jury deliberated for less than an hour before rendering a defense verdict, which was, which was great. And I, I cried and hugged my wife and, we walked out the door. Trial is an emotional roller coaster. It's an exhausting process. And the outcome, as you see in Dr. R's case, is really not in your hands. Two different juries may see the facts differently. You may lose, and that comes with its own trauma. But it is important to remember that your career is so much more than this one case, and that what you do every day as a physician matters. And some physicians feel that just finally getting to tell their side of the story is cathartic, even if the trial doesn't go the way they hoped it would. You know, I think the one thing I would say to doctors, particularly those who have never been through the process before, is be prepared to stand up for yourself take pride in what you did. But most importantly, what's, what I find interesting is every physician that I've taken through trial, perhaps not in these exact words, but has basically told me that it was cathartic, that they were on the stand and they got to tell their story. And it almost didn't matter what the jury did. They felt like they got to say their side and say it in a way where they said it completely. When a doctor feels like they've had the opportunity to get on the stand and tell their story, it removes and releases an awful lot of the stress that they've been feeling. The last point I'd like to make today is that there is a skill set and a mindset needed to be successful in litigation, and it can be learned. This is why the second trial was so much easier for Dr. R., and why my second trial was so much better for me. There is a skill set and a mindset that can be learned and taught. And that is the reason that I started this project in the first place. 
Thanks for sticking with me through this lengthy podcast. We covered a lot of ground today. And believe it or not, it's really just an overview. Remember that there are books and websites that you can reference and that your attorney will be your guide through this. And I think we've established today why it's so important to have an experienced attorney that you trust. Thank you so much to attorneys Douglas Williams and Dr. Bill Sullivan, and thank you to Dr. R for sharing his story. You'll hear a little more from Dr. R in our next and final podcast of this regular series called Life After Litigation. Until then.